Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. Have you ever wondered how to get deals financed in today's environment where multiples, value and valuations are at all-time highs, interest rates continue to skyrocket, certainly changing market conditions? The challenge of being an advisor and growing your business, especially through inorganic acquisition, is a tremendous opportunity, but can be challenging to finance and challenging to figure out the capital requirements to actually fuel that growth. Joining me here today is none other than Dustin Mangon, longtime partner of both myself, Succession Resource Group, and personal friend and resource to the industry. I'll let Dustin do a little bit of background and sharing on PPC loan, because he'll certainly do a more thorough job than I will. But I would say, you know, having worked with him and his firm for over a decade now, PPC is the first industry lender, the longest tenured industry lender that we work with. And I would also comment, and then I'll hand the mic over to you real quick, Dustin, just for a little bit of background and insight into your background for the audience listening. PPC is to date the only lender that we have worked with that has never missed a closing date. And that is saying something because they have been doing it for a very long time for a lot of deals and not all deals are the same. And I know it sounds easy and simple that you know, you've got a lender partner resource who says what they'll do and then does what they said they would do. And while that might sound simple, that is surprisingly challenging with the variety of cats that you end up hurting through this process. So anyway, Dustin, I've said enough good things about you. Want to give the audience listening just a little bit of background on you, PPC Loan? Sure. Thanks for the kind introduction, David. You know, it's unique to think about closing dates and trying to express the value of hitting those timelines to a client on the front end. But I'm sure we'll get into more details surrounding that down the further end of the conversation. But to give a little background on PPC and myself, PPC is a little unique in that as a company established in the late 90s, our focus has always been working with service sector cash flow-based businesses. So we started working with dentists, veterinarians, we've worked with insurance agents, even funeral homes, CPAs, but most importantly, investment advisors. And it's really an industry that we started researching back in 2005 and 2006 when we first met and started to leverage some of the knowledge you had uh, in the industry and specific to M&A and capital needs. But the program was rolled out in late 07, early 08, uh, wasn't the Best of timing because the financial <laughs> crisis set in. And fortunately, we had done a handful of loans and they performed perfectly. So it gave us some confidence. It also gave us the ability to do a little bit more due diligence on this space and helped us to better understand the impact of such a dynamic change to the market. Well, since 2013, it's been full steam ahead. And 
as PPC has grown through the years in this space, it's also allowed us to evolve in a sense where we're providing for a much wider range of capital needs. You know, when the program first came to market, it was focused on acquisitions for RIAs. You know, that right. seemed to be the truest form of independence. We weren't really considering outside needs other than, again, RIAs. And, you know, as the years moved on, you know, we evolved our offering to extend to independent broker dealers. You know, we now work and help advisors within some transition between channels with some firms. But in addition to acquisitions, you know, we're working with our customers to provide for their internal succession planning, whether that's a buy-in, a buy-out, or just an equity transfer between partners. Help firms merge together, equalize you know, equity if there's a need. We offer working capital, lines of credit. So really today, we sit in a spot where we can serve as a consistent source of ongoing capital to independent advisors. We appreciate the scope of coverage there. And it, it automatically prompts a couple of quick questions for me, Dustin, just to help clarify for everybody listening. And things you and I as organizations have worked on dozens of times already this year. But when you think about some of the lending solutions you talked about for the market, internal succession financing, external acquisition and merger stuff. Would you say there are any unique elements or qualities to one versus the other? Is it is it easier or harder to get an internal succession plan finance versus an external or vice versa? I wouldn't say one's more difficult than the other, yeah. but when you consider the two, there's two key differences. Or you know, first, I'd say from a lending perspective, transition risk yeah. with an acquisition. Typically, the seller is moving clients to a firm or an advisor that doesn't have a relationship with those clients. So there's a little more transition risk inherent. Um, and we're going to look to you know, the borrower to potentially have a little more personal financial strength, maybe a little stronger cash flow in some cases, than what we might be looking for in an internal succession plan. And when you think about internal succession planning, usually it's a behind the scene changes for those clients. A lot of the founding partners aren't actively working with the client. The next generation or, you know, other staff members within the firm have really built strong, lasting relationships. So once you're bringing on a junior advisor as a 10% partner, or maybe they're adding or buying additional equity, it really lacks that transition risk we'd see in an acquisition. and, And therefore, you know, looked upon very favorably when we're looking to get loans approved for these types of needs. The last thing I would say is when I talk about cash flow based service sector businesses and all the examples I gave, there's very little, if any, tangible collateral. So for most banks, the biggest question as you're entering these industries is what's my exit plan? You know, if a deal goes bad, this isn't a business we want to own not really a business we can own and not likely the clients would want to work with someone who may or may not be qualified to be an investment <laughs> advisor at the bank. So what we you know, consider there when you think about internal succession planning is there is an easier exit. So if you've got two, three, four loans to junior advisors and one gets into a default situation, right. you know, the easy exit is other partners willing to step up and acquire that equity or the firm repurchasing that equity. 
Got it. Okay. So both are doable. Are you seeing industry-wide, again, just knowing how long you've been sitting in that seat, one outpacing the other? Are you doing more internal versus external? Any changes or trends you can share? You know, we actually dug into the numbers here recently. We were, there was an article being written on succession planning and that specific question came up. Yeah, okay. And we really kind of, you could see a separation between, let's call it the first four to five years of the program and then the last five years of the program if we're considering about 10 years lending to this space. And early on, external succession planning in terms of the loan request it's probably 10 to 15% of our annual volume on average over those years. Okay. And we've seen that grow as much as 30 to 40% of annual closing. So it, it is becoming a more common request. I, mean, we're, I think it's been common for firms historically to transition internally, but now that the capital is available, we're definitely seeing that become a more common request. Yeah, and, I, and you know, you know, because we've referred a lot of business to you all, worked on stuff together over the years and years of working together. It has been interesting to watch, just honestly, from an industry perspective. Well, we SRG have been beating that you know, internal succession drum for a long time, trying to get folks to think about this proactively. You really get engaged with it before they're ready to retire, start sharing equity or using it as you know, part of their compensation career path tools. We've seen a lot more of it, to your point here, in the last, I'll say five to 10 years, but that's probably being generous. In the last four or five years, we've seen a lot of folks really starting to engage in that subject and, and share equity, which isn't easy, I fully acknowledge, but it is a really powerful tool. And I'd say probably about the only area where, now I know you've got some experience in the past lending to CPAs, for example, accountants, the only spot where maybe the accounting industry or even like legal industry has a leg up on the advisor space is that career path. And I think the you know equity sharing succession and your guys' financing to help support it now is a really core part of that. Because you can come into a CPA firm, a law firm, shoot, as an unpaid intern. And you could walk around those hallowed halls and ask around about the career path at any firm, big firm, small firm, regional, national. Pretty much everyone's going to give you the same consistent answer. Then you think about the advisor space and you could ask that question of the founder and it's going to be deer in the headlights. <laughs> it just isn't something the industry has been thinking about. So it, when I fast forward then, and I promise there's a question coming here <laughs> fast forward to where we are today, where folks are starting to think about and engage with it, it, it has been really cool to see an industry full of professional planners, you know, start to engage in professional planning for themselves but the challenge was historically, and you know this, you know, as well as I do, Dustin, before you all had the financing, you know, capital available for those Gen 2 and Gen 3 advisors to be able to buy in, it wasn't the most compelling argument to say, well, Dustin, you should let your internal team buy in and become part of the succession team. But the way that you're going to fund that is by letting them buy 5 or 10%, and they're going to pay for that using the profits that they get. And they're going to do that over 10 years. Basically, said another way, the way that succession planning was done for like the first you know, 10 or 15 years in our industry was almost like profit recycling. We'll take the profits from the owner. We'll give them to Gen 2 and Gen 3. They'll pay taxes on that. And they'll turn around and give that money back to the founder who will then also pay taxes on it and just basically end up with their money back, just less of it. When you think about it from that perspective, 
it, it's hard to argue why they wouldn't get more engaged with that subject. So when I think about a sort of industry financing, the capital you all have brought to bear on the market, I don't think you know you and folks like you who do what you do get quite enough credit for sort of greasing the wheels of commerce. Was there anything, I mean, have you guys always been doing internal you know, succession financing and it just wasn't sort of in vogue or is that a newer program? How'd you guys get to where you are you now? Know, it was there. It existed okay. as an option, but I think the industry wasn't nearly as organized as it is today. Yeah. I think about the resources, the discussion surrounding M&A, internal succession planning. It wasn't nearly as robust right. back in 2013 when we first entered. M&A was starting to really hit the headline. Valuations were much lower. Number of deals <laughs> being done seemingly was a lot less. So I think it kind of evolved second in line to the merger and acquisition market. But when I think back to the discussions and the people we've worked with over the last 10 years, I really think it's a huge desire for a lot of firms. You know, when I think about the industry and the others who aren't as involved on a day-to-day -day basis, right? when you look at the headlines, you would think that the acquisition or for larger firms, especially, let's call it 300 million and up. Selling externally is going to reap the most benefit to you, right? which is probably an accurate statement if they're trying to get as much cash as they can at that point in time and exit the business. But what's not discussed or at least advertised is a lot of firms who do succession planning, and it's just not being reported. And I think, again, for a lot of founders who have been in the business 30, 40 years or longer, uh, you'd probably say, I mean, you would think maybe at least half or more who have the people in place would be more than happy to transition internally. And as you kind of outlined, historically, it was a hard thing to do because there didn't seem to be much value. You're almost better keeping your ownership and for as long as you could and then transitioning out at a later date. And all that does yep. is potentially set back the growth of your firm if people are waiting to become partners and contribute as owners. So it's the, the availability of capital for them to cash out. You know, if you've got a 100% owner, they're selling 10%, 20%, 30%. And almost 100% of the cases that qualify or approved, we're financing 100% of that. You know, those internal buyers... They haven't built a lot of wealth. They don't have the ability to put down a lot of cash. And now this evens the playing field for buyer and seller. So that in itself, I think, has contributed to the growth of what we're seeing in terms of annual capital needs. Yeah, no, 1,000%. Couldn't agree more. So that's the internal stuff. As we th start thinking about just the market at large, you know, third-party buyers and sellers, you know, lots of that deal activity happening. It was funny because I, you may have read the same report that I did, you know, DeVoe, Dave DeVoe's quarter one report. He's pretty good about putting out his observations of the market. And it was interesting because when I read what he had put out for his Q1 release, you know, that even the activity had dropped by like 22% year to date, I thought that it, it must just be the you know, segment of the market that he as an investment banker is working on because I wouldn't say we have seen a significant uptick in volume or activity, but it hasn't slowed. If anything, I think with the 
increased rate environment, we have seen the same volume of deals that we have seen. They're just a little bit maybe harder to get done. I don't know about the underwriting from your guys' perspective or deal volume, but our observations weren't congruent with what he was seeing. And so I thought since I had you on the line, different perspective, you know, we work, work on some deals together, but not all of them. What are you guys seeing? I mean, is the interest rate environment killing the M&A activity for you guys? Are you doing more deals, less deals? So I think the first thing you have to do is kind of differentiate what's being reported versus a lot of the transactions we're working on. Yeah. A lot of time PPC serves as a, what I'd consider kind of a stepping stone or bridge to a point in time where a firm outgrows traditional debt and has a need for private equity or, you know, maybe a larger partner who can contribute just outside of the capital needs. So maybe yep. management support, you know, ongoing M&A, things of that sort. But when you think about those, that separation, you know, a lot of what hits the reports, whether it's DeVoe, Echelon, Fidelity, right. you know, those, to my understanding, are ones that hit the headlines too. Those firms that we just kind of mentioned have helped support the transaction in some form or fashion. But there's a whole nother market that goes unreported on. I mean, we ourselves probably do 100 to 150 loans per year. And not a single one of those typically will hit any headlines. Right. So if there's, you know, and that's going to be a mix of acquisitions, refinances, succession planning, those things. But still, you know, it's a a different market. And a lot of times it's sub billion dollar and maybe the largest percentage of activity or the most deals getting done are sub 500 million. Because, you know, for those advisors who are growing organically, if they layer in that inorganic growth early on, you know, they can really start to hit 100, 200, 300 million pretty quickly in terms of their AUM and get the firm up to a point where they can take that next step. But when you think about the outside factors, we aren't seeing, I would say we're seeing exactly what you're seeing. I haven't seen a reduction in deals. I haven't seen an increase in deals. Arguably, the first quarter, we probably funded more deals than we have in any first quarter over the last 10 years. And some of that has to do with taxes, you know, not having an urgency to fund before the end of 2022. But generally speaking, if you look around that 90-day window, activity has been robust. Yeah. Deals are a little larger. So the loan requests we're seeing are on average a little bit larger. And I think what that tells you is that, you know, the larger, more qualified buyers are out in the market, you know, looking at the larger transactions versus, you know, some of the smaller stuff we see where you might have someone 50 to 100 million buying another 30 to 50 million. So a lot of, again, the activity we're seeing is those that are experienced, they've done deals in the past, they know what they're looking for. And capital is readily available. So that hasn't seemed, and despite rising interest rates, and we'll, we'll get into this as well, but you know, it hasn't seen or hasn't slowed down the activity we're seeing in the market. Okay. And one of the things I'm going to guess probably has, I wouldn't say slow down the activity, but maybe volume of loans or you know, forcing you guys to get more competitive in some cases in certain areas of your offer the broker-dealer financing. Again, you go back to where we were 10 years ago and there really wasn't much financing available at all. And then you all commit capital, you know, make it available to the space. And now we've got a handful of you know the larger independent broker-dealers also bringing capital to the space. It's been kind of funny to watch 
how that's impacted things. And for what it's worth, I think at the end of the day, it's a nice value add for sure from the BD's perspective to the advisors. The downside is I think long-term, I I think it hurts the industry because I don't think they're going to necessarily stay in it for the long game because they're not actually a bank. Some of them are, but most of them are not banks. You know, they're not in the business of lending, you know, capital off their balance sheet. And instead it ends up being a little bit of a flash in the pan, cool little value add short term. But I think it ends up, you know, sort of hurting the long tenure players like you guys in the space. You've been around long enough. It's not your first rodeo. You've seen BDs offer it and then stop offering it. What do you think impact on the industry? Is it you know helping things, hurting things, it make your life more challenging, less challenging? What's the good, bad, and the ugly of the BD financing, Dustin? Good question. I wouldn't say it helps or hurts our offering, okay. but I, I, I don't see a lot of consistency. And what I mean is you've seen broker-dealers come in with a very simplified lending process. Hey, we'll lend up to one times or trailing 12. As long as it qualifies, we're not pulling credit. We'll just give you the money. And then a few years pass, and next thing you know, they're going through a full underwriting process, a full closing process <laughs> with the broker-dealer. And the broker-dealer is having to start to act more like a bank. Right. But that's not their specialty. You know, We've run into that now. We're actually starting to see that where you know, some of these broker-dealers grow. They realize, hey, we have a lot more advisors to serve. They have larger capital needs. Right. And it's really not the best investment for us as a business. It is a small value add, as you mentioned, but a lot of them aren't using it to tie up their advisors. So they're putting a lot of capital to work at potentially low interest rates. While it's pretty riskless, you know, they may have other options out in the market that they may be pursuing acquisitions themselves where the capital is of better use. Now, the flip side for some firms or some broker dealers is they're locking up advisors for an extended period of time. Right. And movement in the independent space has always been, I think, a positive. It gives advisors options. But once you hit your wagon to that horse for, let's say, five to 10 years, you may be stuck with any changes that the broker dealer makes. What if they come in and decide, hey, we need to change our platform, be our override, and increase it to cover increasing compliance costs. You may not have the option to to move. So I always tell advisors, just if you're borrowing that money, make sure you know there's no stipulations that could be impactful long-term. And lastly, this is what we specialize in. So we've found that you know, once the broker-dealers have to settle into a more, under, a more formal process involving underwriting closing, it's hard for them to move at the pace that we can, as you mentioned, kind of hit closing dates at a much faster timeline yep. because they're not their specialty and they're bringing people to support these programs that don't have a background in lending. Yeah, right. Okay. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, some of the, we just generically refer, refer to them as loan covenants, but you know, everybody is curious about or focused on the rate, you know, just like we would with, you know, mortgage, commercial, residential, we care about the interest rate. We certainly care about the term. But the loan covenants are one that, you know, sort of kind of get glossed over until somebody's been through that process before. So I'm glad you brought it up because it it sort of ends up being the redheaded stepchild of that process where nobody reads their loan documents until you're about to close the deal. And then you're finding out all yep. of a sudden you may have an untenable offer that you didn't even really know about. Yeah, we've, and I think 
the covenants is something that needs to be considered, whether it's a broker dealer right. or a lender. You, you could have pointed out something that I use when I'm talking to clients. You know, a good analogy is when you're getting a mortgage, uh, rates all you really care about. I mean, there's not, you know, most lenders are charging around the same in terms of fees and costs. You know, you're not finding that one's two or three times higher than the other, unless you're buying down rate or doing that, something of that sort. But in the advisory space, you know, rate's important, but the packaged offering is even more important. You know, what are my fees and costs? What are my covenants? You know, are they simple covenants from a bank loan? Are they more involved covenants or restrictive covenants in terms of my ability to move down the road and work with other broker dealers, move from a BD to an RIA? So you do get those added covenants. And I think it's important for people to look at different options. And I, you know, we have a lot of clients. We understand that we're not the only option available, but, you know, they will talk to maybe one or two lenders like ourselves and a broker dealer. And it allows them to kind of really compare the options. Okay, what are the covenants? What's the experience I've dealt with too? Not just the hard and fast numbers on paper, but <laughs> who have I enjoyed working with? Who's really going to meet the needs I have, not just today, but if you've got an ongoing M&A plan, you know, will that broker dealer continue to support it? You know, it? It's the core focus of what we do is continuing to support M&A needs. So you know, identifying those things early on can really help save time and make sure you find that right partner. Yeah, 100%. So we talked about rate and term and load covenants. The term is you know, generally pretty easy. I think most of the time it's a 10-year term on these commercial loans. The loan covenants, you know, certainly vary from lender to lender. At least I know with the loans we've seen our clients obtain through you all, they tend to be sort of underwhelmed when they get to the loan covenants. You know, they're really concerned about what they're going to find and then they don't find anything. But on the interest rate, knowing that everybody always wants the lowest interest rate, people are maybe a little hypersensitive to it in today's environment. Where are you guys at on interest rate? I mean, I know there's some variability, but what does the rate environment look like for advisors trying to get a loan? Well, I can give you a little bit of information about us, but one thing I've seen is rates seem to be all over the board right now. Yeah. I'm seeing stuff, you know, in probably now down in the low sevens, if you're looking at something floating or very short term to some rates as high as double digits these days. Okay. You know, most of our stuff, fortunately, the way we're priced, we're doing fixed rates, give or take, I mean, around 8% right now. Okay. Um, you know, some of the floating rate options in the market, it's interesting because advisors will think, okay, well, I really feel we've got about two to three years of higher interest rates, and then they'll start to come down. I want to take advantage of that. Right. That option might be something in the range of prime plus one, which would put you at 9% right now. And a few moves upward, you're nine and a quarter, nine and a half. Well, the next thing you know, over the first two or three years of your loan, you've been paying a higher interest rate. And it's during that time frame when the largest portion of your payment <laughs> is going towards interest. And now you have to get or ride the decline back down for potentially another few years. So I think early on, there was this desire to see floating rates, but considering that not just us, even some other fixed rate options in the market are less right now than some of the floating rate options, you know, that seems to be most desirable by firms, creates some consistency in the monthly payment. And five, six years down the road, if they need to refinance at a lower rate, they'll have the ability to do so. 
Yeah. Okay. Or just a softball for you here. Cause I, I know I've heard this one before from you. Refi is easier than the initial upfront loan. How much easier, how much harder? Generally speaking, much easier. You're not dealing with the seller. So less information, no purchase agreements. Right. So the process can move a little more quickly. Usually if you've qualified for a loan the first time, you're going to qualify down the road when hopefully your firm's grown and the debt's been paid down. So fairly simple for the most part. You know, we're actually, uh, even in a rising interest rate environment, doing quite a few of those because if you look back about two years ago, right after the pandemic, uh, SBA loans were pretty popular. Mm -hmm. you know, the government was basically giving away money, cut all the fees. They would cover your payment for the first six months and you didn't have to repay that. But it became hard to justify looking elsewhere outside of the SBA when, especially if you're borrowing a few million dollars, you might save a hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars by not having to make a payment for the first six months. Um, but those rates or those loans typically came with floating rates. And people have seen rate increases that are significant. And surprisingly, in a rising interest rate environment, you know, we're doing quite a few refinances. Yeah, okay. And yeah, I was at a meeting recently with an advisor who had used you all. We didn't work on his deal, but he was just touting your praises and saying how easy that refinance process was, which you acknowledge rate changes, refinances, you know, happen more and more. You expect refinancing to be easier, but again, commercial loans just tend to be a little bit different animal and where we get so used to mortgages and refinancing there or refinancing your car and how easy that is. Commercial financing is just a different beast. So when you hear somebody saying that it was easy, it's that's a win. <laughs> so I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I always jokingly tell people you know, we like to make it as simple and efficient as possible. The flip side of that is you are borrowing money. Right. And in a business where there's not a ton of tangible collateral back to where <laughs> you started this conversation. So, yeah, and that's, you know, it comes down to that credit quality and cash flow strength. And, right. you know, like I said, the nice thing is for most of those individuals looking to refinance, they have met those requirements once already and fairly easy to do so a second time around. So I know you've done this for a long time for a lot of different buyers, good ones, good deals, some a little bit more challenging. So for folks who are listening today that, let's say, are more on the buy side or certainly in growth mode, they're looking to maybe start to do inorganic growth, acquisitions, mergers, or at least expand that. They need the capital. Is there anything that your kind of quote unquote best borrowers are doing different that you'd recommend other folks you know, start to adopt or consider to get easier access to more capital? You know, it's a very good question. I was kind of thinking about this and one of the unique things about the advisory space is the market does a good job of weeding out bad buyers. You're unqualified. Right. Maybe you're not of size in terms of what the seller's looking for in a buyer. And typically, if you don't qualify on the personal financial side, a lot of times it starts to feed into the size, the quality of the buyer as well. And it just, what we're seeing in terms of buyers who make it to us have a deal in place, very qualified, not a lot of just outright declinations due to their inability to qualify for financing. But those in the market that seem to you know, really be best positioned, you know, a lot of times putting a, an overall plan in place 
for doing acquisition. And what I mean by that is some advisors may just come across a listing that you all emailed out and they have an interest in growing inorganically. But outside of that, I haven't done much research, don't understand what the capital looks like and don't really choose to learn about not only the capital options, but all other aspects of M&A before they make an offer on a practice for the first time. <laughs> and I think that can put them in a position where they don't come across as the most highly qualified buyers. You know, we work with a lot of firms, whether it's their first acquisition or second, third, fourth, where we're having discussions, we're talking deal structures, we're pre-qualifying them and really giving them the ammunition they need to go to the negotiating table and confidently make an offer that may be, again, a little bit more aggressive than the other two or three offers that the sellers narrow down to. So I, you know, just as the profession um, is focused around planning these days, I mean, you have to carry that over into the inorganic growth and the mergers and acquisitions if that's going to be a focus of the firm. Because as you get larger, you know, that founder probably not client facing. Now they're running a business, managing staff, you know, dealing with a lot of other variables that come as firms get larger and grow at an accelerated pace. So even if it's having an extra team member or leveraging someone like an SRG to support those ongoing needs, but it's really planning, preparation, understanding what they're capable of, capable of doing because you know, we have some clients who call or some potential borrowers say, hey, I you know, haven't gone through an acquisition I might be working at a broker dealer managing just 40, 40 to 50 million of assets. And we can walk them through, hey, there might be a difference in terms of what we can finance if you're trying to buy 100 or 150 million in assets versus something of equal or slightly smaller size where maybe 100% financing is available. So again, those early discussions, that planning, I think can make a huge difference for being the chosen buyer because we know it's a you know, crowded field in terms of buyers and a limited supply in terms of sellers. It's funny you mentioned your timing of when to talk to you all. And it seems obvious in hindsight, but again, folks get bogged down in negotiating the deal, figuring out the transition plan and the timeline. If they are with a broker dealer, onboarding, moving the assets from one custodian to another, if that's on the table, just there are so many moving pieces, but I'm glad you brought it up because it is a point worth you know emphasizing and pointing out again it's never too early to pick the phone up and call somebody like you know, Dustin and his team at PPC loan just start kicking the tires on the subject honestly you know to help set you apart as a buyer it's it's nice to to have a quote unquote guy that when you're sitting down with a seller and they've talked to a handful of other buyers and at some point the capital the down payment's going to come up and when you can say you know what let, let me make a quick phone call and we can have that conversation together all of a sudden, you look like the smartest person in the room. So to help wrap us up then, and Dustin, because that was kind of a good place to bring this to a close. If folks wanted to get in contact with you, you know, regardless of where they are in this journey, you know, early, just considering growth through acquisition, or they've got a deal and they're trying to get this thing funded and closed like yesterday, where's the best place to reach you all? How can they reach PPC? Yeah, so, you know, quick phone call good place to start, but we also have quite a few resources through our website. I think it's investment-advisors.ppcloan.com, but I'm sure we can provide this uh, in some other form or fashion. Um, but those resources that we're now making available, not only are they thought leader content, 
There's information on deal structures, you know, next-gen loans for the internal succession planning. But there is a quick pre-approval option as well. And that can be a good place to start if it's a little bit painful to get on the phone. You know, I see a lot of people just, you know, one of those things, as you mentioned, procrastinate, put it on the back burner. I'll reach out to Dustin in a few days. Next thing you know, it's a few weeks, a few months, and all of a sudden they're making an offer on a practice. But, you know, we do have a lot of resources available through our website. You can access the investor investment advisor side as well, just simply through pbcloan.com. And that's always a great place to start. Perfect. And I know you all are pretty prolific on social media like we are as well. So, you know, feel free to check them out, follow them on LinkedIn. They're very good about pushing out interesting and relevant content, something we always appreciate, just help raise the bar on awareness on this subject industry-wide because it's we still, we've made a ton of progress in the last, you know, five to 10 years collectively, but lots more to make. So as we wrap things up, if anybody wants more information on financing resources, again, check out PPC Loan. You can frankly just Google them. They're pretty good about their search engine results and optimization. They'll pop right up. Follow them on social media. You can follow Succession Resource Group on our website, www.successionresource.com. Same deal. Our best business development sales strategy is sharing the information with you so that when the time is right, you know where to reach us. You can chat with us live there. Same thing as Dustin and PPC. Follow us on LinkedIn. We're constantly pushing out new content, new practices for sale, and amazing podcasts like the session you just heard today. So without further ado, we will go ahead and wrap things up. Thank you. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com. Or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.